The title for this morning's talk is To Forget Our Separations. Meaning to forget the walls of separation, of isolation that we have. We continue, we have and we continue to erect around ourselves. Walls that parcel out the world into my cubicle or my territory and yours. And the rest of the world. Always separated. For the benefit of those of you who were here in the previous talks, let me put this talk in context of the whole series. Friday and Saturday I enlarged in the first three lines of a poem by Zen master Dogen which go like this. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become enlightened by all things. In today's talk, I will revisit those lines and I move to a fourth line which says, to become enlightened by all things is to free one's body and mind and those of others. Because, you see, as we forget the self, we do away with separations. And the this dropping of separation spreads both within ourselves, separations from parts of ourselves, and outside ourselves. Separation starts with the construction of the self and fades away when the self peters out. One could say, very simply, much self, much separation. Little self, little separation. No self, no separation. Let's examine this progression, starting with the separation. And of course, reviewing some of the things I said before. Doesn't hurt to be reminded. On Friday, I went over in some detail into the ways in which the construction of ourself, our persona, involves separation from others. I also went over one of the most basic teachings of the Buddha, 
which goes under the name of dependent arising. In that teaching, the Buddha highlights how the pursuit of what feels pleasant, the avoidance, pushing away of what feels unpleasant, and the ignoring of all that does not fall into these two categories is used up to build up our egos, ourselves. Because you see, wanting the pleasant leads to creating the wanter, I want, I want, I want. Hating the unpleasant leads to creating the hater, I hate, I hate. And the I stands up. And thus we end up trapped in the cocoon of this I, this me, who wants or who hates. <coughs> and we prior prioritize only that which feeds the this phantom self. We ignore all the rest. And we end up disconnected, alienated from the rich medley of what is really real, both in our inner and in our outer life. So, I just talked about disconnecting by the ego. A very similar disconnection, alienation, as the one occurring at the level of the individual I've just described, occurs also at the collective level. Only that then the ego being boosted is not so much the personal ego, but the public or collective ego. Something that somebody has very aptly called the we-go. We-ego. The we-go. Say a political party, an ethnic group, a country's elite, whatever, a religious set, whatever group, decides to shore up its identity, its image, its, its we-go. The bluntest, most expedient way of doing that is the pursuit of something the group may want to have or some enemy the group may decide to hate. Take, for instance, uh, citizens of a country. I could name a number who might decide, or be persuaded to, rather, by politicians, of course, to, to move on with the army, to occupy land claimed by others. Or, again, in another instance, 
referring to hate. Groups of individuals may be lured into hating the immigrants that come from a different country or ethnicity. It's done constantly, over and over again. Because through such wants and through thus such dislike, the collective ego, the ego, gets a boost. And of course, so do the politicians exploiting this tendency. As the saying goes, and it's a very wise saying, it's a very old saying, divide and rule, or divide and conquer. What a way to run a world. In my youth, when I lived in Argentina, I, I got very involved in political activities, as a, even as a high school student and uh, as a college freshman. And I can tell, I mean, I remember, I, I, I truly and totally bought into this scheme of us versus them. It's true, I grant myself the wisdom of choosing sides well or reasonably. But still, in the end, what mattered for me was which side won, namely that my side won and not lost. That particular battle. The problem lies with intention. Was the struggle I was involved, or others are involved, primarily about reaching a wholesome outcome? Surely that was part of it, in my case. Or was it primarily about boosting up my personal ego or our collective ego? For me, often enough, what started like the former ended up like the latter. It was only in my mid-fifties when I came in touch with the teachings of the Buddha that I started to decommission this system, decommission my trenches, and discovered that there is, there was and there is, another way to relate, to become intimate with life, which is a way of connectivity. Okay, so how do we decommission our trenches? We've got to start with the inner ones, you know. Maybe, I'm not saying start chronologically start, but the, the key, the linchpin, is the inner connectivity. If we discover a, an ability to connect with ourselves, then we can connect with others. Otherwise, how could you possibly connect with others? 
and, and for me that developed in the solitude of retreats in the 1980s that I started attending there for the first time I realized I caught sight of the trenches I had barricaded myself behind I saw through my own process of dependent arising and found ways if not of totally dismantling them at least to start dismantling them and, and so when we do that then it's possible to start connecting connecting in one-to-one -one relationships and connected, connecting in in the larger context You see, one-to-one -one relationships are really like a, a stage where these possibilities can be explored. On the one hand, one-to-one -one relationships can be prodigiously nurturing and freeing when they are not based on the strategies of the ego but rather on the willingness of two people to share the vividness of the life, of the feelings. <coughs> Fine, but this is a tall order when we come from a culture of individualism, of competitiveness. Our life has been guided by that, certainly mine had, and much often this individual entrenchment prevails even within a one-to-one -one relationship. <coughs> so sometimes even in one-to-one -one relationships we find ourselves in the trenches. But if we find ourselves there, uh, that in itself is not a problem. We all fall into those trenches sooner or later. It's just not getting stuck there. It's, it's to use the opportunity as we fall into those trenches to understand, to see through the futility and to find an incentive to get out either by reshaping this relationship we are in or sometimes by leaving it, of course if it's not uh, doable so and, and sometimes when we decide to terminate a relationship there's still something else to pay attention to. Because are we just going to get caught up in the formalities of this? 
legal, financial formalities of establishing this separation. Oh, I got this. You know, I lost my property. I gained this, I lost that. And, and, and it, it becomes the whole issue. That's not the real issue. The, the real issue, if, if our motivation to terminate the relationship was with an inner call for liberation, the real issue is to be free. To, to be free from, not just from the other person, but actually and primarily from the tyranny, the tyranny, sorry, tyranny of our own ego. Remaining true to the inner call for liberation implies seeking a space in ourselves where connectivity with others is not just possible, but can thrive. And what I've just said about one-to-one -one relationships, of course, it's an, a prelude to talk about collective relationships, larger, larger social relationships. In order to truly connect with society at large, we have to extricate ourselves from the trenches that alienate us, from both from inner and outer humanity. Now, of course, in, in being so critical of the trenches, we need to recognize that the barriers, the trenches, are not established just by the individuals. Sometimes, and very often, much too often, they are erected by society at large. There are external barriers put in place deliberate to oppressors, as in totalitarian regimes, authoritarian regimes, even elitist regimes. We have plenty of examples of all that throughout the world and uh, sometimes much too close to home. So uh, surely it's important that we engage in remove the, removing those uh, barriers uh, from the outside. And yet, still, the core problem is results from the barriers we erect ourselves. <coughs> Removing this self-erected barriers should be in our hands. What we need is an opportunity to discover that we can do it. Yes, we can. When I was a teenager, 
much of South America was in the grip of military dictatorships. <coughs> Things have changed now significantly. And that, but in my time, there was a dictatorship in Argentina where I lived, and there was a long standing dictatorship in Brazil, the next door, uh, next door neighbor, a country that I loved. I was and still am fascinated by it. So at the time, as a teenager, I managed to take trips to Brazil. And I was amazed to discover something very peculiar. And the worst, in the worst times of the dictatorship there, there was an incredible emergence of a, a cultural renaissance. You saw people interested in culture all over the place. And the two things were not coincidental, they were connected in some way. I remember going to a theater in some southern city in Brazil, and um, there was a line in the play that challenged authority in some funny, subtle way. You couldn't do anything obvious in a dictatorship. And a murmur emerged from the whole theater <laughs> of approval. <laughs> they didn't even have to clap. They went, ah. I mean, uh, wonderful. It was fun. So, you see, although the external barriers were there, people had not bought into barricading themselves, to that extent anyway. And of course, this is, this is very much connected to Brazil in democracy today, which is one of the most uh, extraordinary ones. A rich, enormous country with so much, many forces, economic forces, etc., which still pays attention to its people. I mean, some attention at least. That's unusual. Look at us. <laughs> and of course, that reminds me, I, that was brought up really by thinking of Egypt, of Tahrir Square. Because if there was a murmur in that theater, there were incredible calls for freedom in Tahrir Square. That's that uh, square in central Cairo where this uh, revolution took off from. And it's very extraordinary and symbolic that Tahrir in Egyptian, in Arabic, 
means liberation. Egyptians from all walks of life gathered here, there in the hundreds of thousands, if not a million, maybe up to a million, I don't know, to demand the end of their oppressive regime. And, and that demand led to the dethroning of Hosni Mubarak and his cohorts. It, it's true that the final details of this political process haven't yet unfolded, and it's certain that the, out, the final outcome will please some and not others. But I'm not talking about outcomes, just as I wasn't talking before about outcomes of a divorce and who gets what. I'm talking about the inner liberation resulting from that. <coughs> what, what matters in the end, what was unmistakable in Tahrir Square, was the willingness of the Egyptian people to come <coughs> there and open up to each other. The coming, coming together to share the space of freedom. Nobody can take that away from them. Raquel and me have, uh, have the good luck of having satellite television and the privilege of, have had the privilege of seeing the unfolding of this process through Al Jazeera English and very particularly through Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! program. So we had a kind of a front seat to watch this unfolding. Unfolding of connectivity, of connectivity, that's what really counted there. Let me share a, a segment of an interview that Uh, Sherif Abdel Kudush, producer of Democracy Now, um, did with uh, Araf Swaif, a much respected uh, Egyptian novelist. Here's the transcript. Sherif, producer of Democracy Now. You were in Tahrir Square almost every day, and it was like a re revolutionary republic there. Sharif was also there. It was a different Egypt. Talk about this new kind of Egypt that was created during these 18 days. Ada Suez, a, a woman. Right. Well, you know, I think that what happened, and this isn't just me, because at one point, you know, you start thinking that maybe you're having visions, or you were, you know, but everybody 
who talks about it talks in the same terms. That it was that people were rediscovering themselves and each other. That's a key. I repeat. People were rediscovering themselves and each other. It was as though everybody had been locked in, a, in solitary, in a small little dark box, you know, and told to be afraid of everything else, and sort of rattled from time to time. And you opened the box and stepped out and found that everything was great. You know, there was light. There were other people. And what happened was that almost overnight, a civic space was created in Tahrir Square that was the ideal space that one imagined, that any, everybody imagined how the country should be or how any country should be. People were kind of really careful of each other. I think she means taking care of each other. That, that's what she means. People were very courteous. People were picking up rubbish. People were bringing things to off. Very soon, you didn't go to Tahrir without, some, without something to offer. Whether it was cookies, whether it was your effort, whether it was water, whether it was medicines for field hospitals. In other words, everybody was finding the best in themselves and putting it forward. And that was just incredible. For me, this is in also incredibly valuable as a testimony, not as an object, object, objective testimony. I, I'm not saying that everything was perfect there, but that a very wise person who was there with all her family, with all her friends, could feel that way and felt the need to share that feeling. That's a reality. Not the externals. That's a reality. We lose track so much with our personal inner world and our collective inner world that such a testimony, we, we might dismiss it. Well, you know, there were these thugs there and people still in here. This is how she experienced it. And it does have an effect. In a TV screen, witness after witness, speaking of Tahrir Square, 
testified that people at the square underwent profound personal changes and found new ways of being together in peace. And by the way, all this was done without any leaders, just organically. There were no leaders there. They were together not just because they had similar agendas, but because they discovered they could open to each other. You could see this, feel it, I could anyway, in their voices, in their gestures, and very often in their tears as well. That they cared for each other as much as for themselves. There is, of course, much evidence that uh, for millions of Egyptians and for millions and for many millions in the rest of the world, myself included, and perhaps many of you included, I don't know, this, the echoes of Star Hill Square spiral profoundly. Not politically, I mean, you might politically too in some places, but primarily inside our minds and heart. We gained a sense that freedom from outer and inner oppression is indeed possible. That freedom can reverberate both inside ourselves and outside ourselves. When we let this sense resonate inside us, we discover our inner Tahrir Square. A Tahrir Square inside ourselves, a clearing and open space in our inner life. You know, for me, this is reminiscence of the uh, squares, the traditional squares or piazzas from the cultures of southern, southern Europe, and I grew up in Argentina in such a culture. Because there's squares in every city where they are available to us to go there and connect with each other, meet with others, or simply sit there witnessing the flow of life, but feeling connected. That's a tiny little thing in itself. It probably achieves nothing unless we go there with the spirit that people went to Tahrir Square. And then look, look at some other aspect of the Cairo Tahrir Square. It was jammed to the brim, if you, I mean, many times jammed to the brim for days on end. But when it came time to leave, leave, the demonstrators 
the people of the square in a very symbolic gesture got busy at clearing the area sweeping away all the trash <coughs> that's what we also need to do with our inner Tahrir Square and in the process of cleaning our square in the process of sweeping away the remnants of our ego and our ego we also need to sweep away all the fences that we have erected, all the unnecessary fences. And, I mean, maybe a fence or two that we still need, sure. But all the unnecessary fences we have erected in our inner life. And in doing that, we come to discover that we are one with the world and one with the various parts of ourselves as well. We even come to appreciate the vulnerability that this inevitably entails. Because we come to realize that vulnerability does not detract, but contribute, if properly understood, to the gift of connectivity. It's true, sometimes we do not feel ourselves ready to become vulnerable, to become exposed. And yeah, in such a case, it's quite appropriate to guard our privacy as we need it until the readiness to open up emergencies. We simply acknowledge this need to protect ourselves, but we do not fuel, we do not feed protectionism. Anyway, I've said enough. What counts is not my deluge of words, but your own experience. So let's just sit in this hall now, quietly in this liberation square of our mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.